Bibles to Psalm 40 as we continue to think about the salvation that God has provided us. Just the first three verses. Psalm chapter 40, verses 1, 2, and 3. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me, and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. And he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see it and will fear and will trust in the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these verses and pray that as we think about them this morning that you would unfold to us what you want us to know. Lord, we thank you for our salvation and for the gift that you have given to us in Christ. Thank you for your love, for your grace and mercy that have been shown to us, especially as we have believed in the death of Christ on the cross, understanding that that death was substitutionary, that it was meant as a sacrifice for the sins of men. And I thank you, Lord, that when we cry out to you, you hear us. And I thank you that you change our lives. You bring us from one place and put us into another and give us joy. And I pray as we go through this this morning, Lord, that you would be present with us and teaching us and helping us as we think in Jesus' name. Amen. God changed my life many years ago. Um, I mentioned earlier it was 1982. I was 14 years old, and through a set of circumstances, I won't go through all of those circumstances, the gospel came into my life. And I heard for the first time that I needed God. I needed Jesus Christ. I had been brought up um, in a church that basically taught that men were good and that everybody goes to heaven. God is love, and therefore everybody kind of falls under the umbrella of God's love. His banner over me is love. We used to sing that all the time. And uh, as a kid, I thought, great. All roads are leading up the same mountain. They're all leading to God. I don't have to really worry about much of anything, and so I just lived and fulfilled my flesh however I wanted to do it and didn't really worry about God's judgment on me until uh, when I was 12 or 13 for the first time in a Sunday school class somebody opened up the Bible and started reading and and for the first time I realized whoa all roads do not lead to God God is not happy with sin in fact God judges sin and I read about the holiness of God for the first time and read about the judgment of God for the first time. And God brought me under conviction from that moment up until the time that I repented of my sin and came to Christ. And as I mentioned, I had heard the gospel several times during that year um, from my parents, from other people, from Sunday school teachers. and and. And it had a profound impact on my thinking and on my life and came to the point where I realized that my condition before God was desperate, that I was actually an enemy of God because of my sin. 
in that Jesus Christ had paid for my sin, but that I needed to repent. I needed to believe. And so I remember, I don't remember the date, but I remember the night pretty clearly that I was in my bedroom alone. And I don't remember exactly what I prayed, but it was something like, God, if you're there, I don't want to die in my sin. Thank you for sending Jesus Christ to the earth to pay for my sin. I want to be saved. Please save me. Something to that effect. And from that moment, God changed my life completely. It hasn't been the same. My desires have changed. My goals have changed. My attitudes toward people, my attitude toward government, my attitude toward things, my attitude toward money have, has changed. Whereas before, pretty much everything was for me and for myself. And while I still struggle with selfishness like probably many of you do, it's not my life's goal anymore to promote myself or to gain things for myself, but it's rather to live for God's glory, to serve him and to serve others. And all of this happened not because I turned over a new leaf, not because I heard some promotional speaker on Channel 2 telling me that I needed to get spiritual. It was because God came into my life and changed me from the inside out. And those changes are real. And I can, I can tell you that if you look at your own life, if you're saved or if you're not, and you know somebody who's a Christian, you know this to be true. You know that salvation has a huge impact on people. It changes um, completely people from the inside out. Now, most of us here, I would guess, just looking over the audience, I know most of you, are pretty well versed in the doctrine of salvation. And you might say, well, why do you keep going over? You know, why keep going back to the gospel? Why keep talking about the fundamental thing? It might seem like an elementary class to some to talk once again about salvation, but really it's not. And I'll tell you why. Speaking about the glories of salvation, whether we do it like this in a setting where I'm up front and I'm talking to you, or whether we talk on the phone or, or just talk to each other about our salvation, that in and of itself, when we talk about the acts of God, that in and of itself brings glory to God. Did you know that? Every time you say to somebody, God saved me, God sent his son to be the propitiation for my sins, God took me from this place and turned me around and did this. You are talking about an act of God. And every time we speak about the acts of God, we're, we're worshiping him. We're praising him. We're bringing glory to him. And so we should do it all the time. That's what I think. Second, the doctrines related to salvation run deep. Anybody who's been a Christian for any length of time knows this. The, the, the gospel is simple. Jesus died for your sin, and you need to believe that. That's the gospel. But the doctrine of salvation, as we start to get into it, and you begin to, to look at the holiness of God, and the judgment of God, and the righteousness of God, and, and sin, and salvation, and how it works together, there's a lot to think about. And we shouldn't just stay on the surface. We should run deep now and then. Last week, Pastor Dan talked about false teachers, third reason we need to keep teaching about salvation is because there's a lot of information out there that's just plain wrong. And it doesn't take long to walk out these doors and start listening to people who will teach something that is unbiblical. It's not truth. And people latch on to those things and they, they carry them with them. 
And I don't want to be guilty of teaching false doctrine, and I don't want us as a church to be guilty of believing false doctrine. And so we need to get back to and, and keep thinking through um, salvation. And that particular doctrine has been so attacked and so abused over the years that it's good to go back to the scripture and just get the record straight. Fourth, we need to be reminded. We need to talk about these things. It's why God instituted communion or the Lord's table. It's so we don't forget because our tendency is to forget. We live in the moment. It's interesting to think about our life on the timeline as we're moving through time. We can only live in the now. We can't go back and redo anything that we've done, and we can't jump ahead to the future. We are living now, and so anything that happens, whatever we say, whatever we do, it's in the present. But what happened in the past, while we can't go back there, it's still important. And if we don't remind ourselves of certain key things in our lives, what do we tend to do? We tend to forget. We tend to move on and do something different and not think about those things. And salvation, those, that's one of those things. We have to keep reminding ourselves because it's easy just to, to let God go in life and to drift off into the world and drift off into our jobs and family and, and not think about what God has done. And then lastly, why talk about it? Well, I think the more we talk about it, the more we know it, the more we understand it, the more we are thinking about it, the more apt we are to share it. And that's just true. It's true of anything in life, isn't it? If, what's your hobby right now? What are you into right now? Every one of us could probably come up with something that we're into. Building a, a model ship with my son. All right? So we're, we're into it, and I could start talking to you about it and all the little details of what we're doing and gluing and painting and, and reading instructions and, and all that stuff. And, and if I talk, if I think about it and I'm, and I'm talking to him about it, I'm more apt to talk to you about it. I just did. So if we're thinking about salvation and we're reviewing it in our minds and we're talking about it, we are going to be more apt to talk about it with others. So our text this morning is Psalm 40. And what I'd like to do is to pull out some pictures. As I thought about this text and read it myself, there were six pictures that jumped out at me, and I want to share them with you this morning. The first two are pictures of unsaved people, people who have never come to Christ. The first one is just the picture of an unsaved man, and then the second one I've called a picture of what an unsaved man can do. The third and fourth ones are pictures of God. The first, a picture of God's mercy and his grace. And second, a picture of God's work in salvation. And then the last two are a picture of a believer, somebody who has come from, God, from that place of darkness into the light and has been saved. And so five and six are a picture of the changes in a believer, the glorious changes in a new believer. Or in number six, the picture of a new believer's witness. And so we'll cover all these things kind of rapid fire this morning. But as we read through, I hope that you'll see them um, as, you, as we dig into this text and pull it apart a little bit. Psalm 40 is a psalm that is attributed to David. And like many of the other psalms, David is writing about his relationship to the Lord during a difficult trial. 
Unlike many of the other psalms, we don't know what the trial was in this psalm. It's unnamed. It's unknown. All we know is that David was in a predicament by the language that he uses. He was in some position in which he couldn't help himself. It was some dangerous place. Um, Maybe it was when he was physically ill to the point of death. We don't know. But it's here that we begin to look at the first picture, which is the picture of the unsaved person. I'd like to read the passage again with you. It's only three verses and just pull out a couple of phrases here. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of what? A pit. The King James says, an horrible pit. The New American here says a pit of destruction and out of what else? Miry clay, which I guess the best modern-day description of that would be like quicksand or, or loose mud that you get stuck in. You ever seen one of those fields right near the ocean after the tide has gone out and there's just three or four feet of muck after the water is left? And if you get out in there, you can sink up to your knees or up to your hips uh, if it's deep enough. That's the miry clay. So let's think about these for a moment as we think about the picture of an unsaved person. And as we do this, I hope it stirs up some compassion in you as it has in me to remember not only are we thankful that God has done something in our lives, that God has brought us to this, but to to look around us and remember where people are. You know, I think the older I get and the longer I am saved, the less compassion I feel for people. I don't know if that's true with you, and I don't know why that is, but I tend to have a more cynical view of people. I tend to have a more frustrated view of people, neighbors, officials, family members, whoever it is. But as we go through this, I hope that it will stir up in your mind, as it has in mind, that people need Christ. This is where they are. This is where you and I were before we met God. We were in a pit. And when you think, when you start thinking about the illustration that David's using here, it's not a pretty picture. It's a picture of complete hopelessness. Utter blackness. And I don't know. I mean, I can remember a little bit before I was saved. I was 14, so it's going back a few years. But I can remember times just wondering, what in the world is life about? Where am I going? I don't, and, you, and when you don't know, you don't know, and that's where you are. And that's where people are. What is the pit? The pit is a word in the Hebrew that's, that's used to describe a grave. How would you like to be down in a grave right now alive? Not me, probably not you. A hole, a cistern, a prison, or a dungeon. Um, Just picture in your mind, we could do it out in the backfield if we wanted to. Take a drill and start drilling down. And drill down far enough that you can't reach the top anymore. And then widen out the hole big enough so that you can go in it. I don't know if anybody's claustrophobic in here. Um, if you are, that probably would frighten you just thinking about it. But I can't, 
I can't imagine because I haven't been there myself. I've heard, you've probably read stories in the news about people falling down into wells or deep holes and they're, they're trying to rescue them. But what, what would go through your mind if you were down in a hole and there's no way out? You can't climb out. You don't have the strength. You don't have a foothold. You don't, there's, there's nothing you can do. You're down there and you're down there for good unless somebody comes and helps you. And that is the condition of an unsaved person. They're in a pit, and they can't get themselves out. They need help. And unless somebody comes down and reaches down and pulls them out, and only God can do that, they're going to be in that pit forever. They're going to be stuck down there, and they're not going to get out. Ephesians chapter 2 in the New Testament describes an unsaved person like this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And so an unsaved person in Ephesians 2 is described as the walking dead. No spiritual life. No life with God. An enemy of God. A child of wrath are the words that are described here. Not only completely dead in trespasses and sin, but completely enslaved to it. There's nothing else that, that we know before we come to God. Romans chapter 6, if you'd like to turn, you can turn to these. If not, I, I'll read them to you. Chapter 6, verse 15 says, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? God forbid. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. So what's an unsaved person described as? A slave to sin, owned by sin. And thirdly, he's not only completely dead, completely enslaved, but he's unable to get out on his own. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Pastor Stringer had this up on the screen this morning in a Sunday school class. He saved us not because of works done by us. There's nothing we could have done. Not by works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So when you picture an unsaved per person, picture them down there in that pit. Dark, alone, enslaved, and stuck. And they cannot get out. So that's the pit. How, how is the pit described? In your, in your King James, it uses what word? What kind of a pit is it? Horrible pit. Or in the New American Standard, it says a pit of what? Destruction. Any other words out there? Any other translations? Horrible pit. The word horrible or destruction actually comes from a root word that means noise. 
And again, you have to use your imagination a little bit here, but I can tell you if all of a sudden there was a noise that was loud enough in this room right now, we would all, we would all fear in one way or another. If the building was shaking, or if we heard the sound of a great wind like a hurricane, things would change instantly. We'd probably stop everything and, and run and, and hide and go somewhere because we would fear. And the fear is really what's being driven at at this word. It's a horrible pit. It's a pit of destruction. And it's, it's like you're in a storm. It's like you're in a flood. It's like you're in something where you can hear the destructive power of whatever it is around you and you're afraid. And that's the feeling that the person has who's in that pit. Other words that could be translated from this uproar, tumult, deep. It would be dark, full of horror, completely impassable and no way out. Isaiah 38 says, For Sheol does not thank you. Death does not praise you. Those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. There's a loss of hope. Everybody who's here right now, I guarantee, has some measure of hope in your life. You have hope that we're going to get through this sermon and get back to lunch. You have hope that tonight we're going to do something else. We have hope because we, we look into the future and we see something that's good. We all have hope. But have you ever been to a place in your life where you've lost it, where you have lost hope? It's a terrible thing to stop and think about that. But what is the hope of a person who does not know God? They have none. What are they hoping in, themselves? Are they hoping in their bank account? Are they hoping in the praise of people around them? I don't know. What is there to hope for? But there's always that, that lack of, of hope for the future. But the pit that they're in, it's a horrible pit. It's a pit of destruction. There is no way out. There is no hope. It leads only to condemnation, and that's where it's going to end. Those without Christ, we read in John chapter 3 this morning, are condemned already. Why? Because they have not believed in the name of the Son of God. And this condemnation is eternal. If you look at John chapter 5, I'd like to read a passage from verse 25 to 29. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he's the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. Everybody who's died That's where we go when we're dead. We're in the grave. We're in the tomb. There is an hour coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And that judgment is final. There's nothing after that. If in this life we have not hoped in Christ, there is no chance after death. I know that there's, there's people today who don't like this doctrine. They don't like the idea of God judging sin eternally, and so they'll change it. 
I just can't reconcile the love of God with the judgment of God. And so they'll change it and say, well, maybe God's going to give somebody a second chance. You know? Is God really that? Whatever they say, that he wouldn't give somebody a second chance. And so there's this whole theology that's being built today around a thought that isn't biblical. It's not true. It's appointed unto men once to die, and after this, judgment, Hebrews chapter 10. There's no purgatory. I had friends that I grew up with who talked about going to hell as if it were some fun party that they were going to be at. They would say this. I mean, maybe you've heard it, but I, I heard them say it. I want to be there because all my friends are going to be there. I have no clue. Revelation 21, verse 11 says, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened, and then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books. So what do you think is written in those books? I can guarantee that if I stood before God and he opened a book, and in that book was written all of my life, every act every thought, every attitude, I would have nothing to stand on. And if he judged me according to that book, I'm in trouble. And that's what will be. Apart from the blood of Christ, which cleanses from sin, that's what will be. The books will be opened, and we will be judged. The dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and hell gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And then death and hell were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name is not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. It's a horrible pit. It's one that is hopeless. It's one of destruction. And that condemnation has, you know, for anybody to even think that hell might be fun really hasn't got a clue as to what the Bible says. I could read a lot of verses, I guess, but I just want to read a couple to you. In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus was really condemning the Jews for not believing him and basically was saying, there's a lot of other people who are going to come in and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while you, the sons of the kingdom, will be thrown into outer darkness. Even those words, outer darkness, just pause and think about it for a moment. It's been a long time since I've been lost. I'm a guy, and I like to know where I am. And I generally do. 
And if I, if I do happen to get lost, either in a major city or on a road I've never been on, I always figure I can find my way home. You know, either I can throw the GPS on or I can call and ask somebody. But what if you were really and truly lost? Outer darkness. You're, you're so far away from anybody and everybody that there's no, there's no hope of ever getting back. That's what hell will be like. I don't know that people in hell will ever even see another person. The way it's described as total darkness, outer darkness, like stars, it says, wandering in Jude, through, through blackness, there'll be nothing to see. And in that place, there will be weeping. Why do you think people will be weeping? Again, I haven't cried. I cry sometimes. Music gets me sometimes. Watching a movie where something emotional happens gets me sometimes. But this is weeping of a different kind. Why do people weep here? There's no way out. And gnashing of teeth when I first heard this phrase, I was a teenager, and I don't know what you thought if you heard of gnashing of teeth, but I thought of like vampire teeth or monster teeth coming at me like it was going to be some horror film in hell with monsters there. That's not what it's talking about. You know what the gnashing of teeth is? It's your own teeth. You're biting down on your teeth. And why do people do that? Pain? Suffering? That's the place of judgment. That is the pit of destruction. It is dark, lonely, hopeless, painful, and without end. Outer darkness, weeping, and gnashing of teeth. Second Thessalonians chapter 1 says, Inflaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who don't know God, and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. It is a bleak, black picture, but it's a picture that we need to know. And those of us who are saved, we, we are so thankful that God picked us up and brought us out of that. And we live in joy and we live in peace and, and we've been changed and we can, we can revel in that to a degree, but don't Take your eyes off of that picture because I believe God wants us to know it. He wants us to understand it. One more thing about this picture and then I'll, I'll move on. I wanted to dwell on this one a little bit longer. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction. And we described that a little bit. What else did he bring us up out of? The miry clay. The miry clay. And again, if you can, I don't know, if you can picture yourself being dropped from a helicopter into one of those mud fields and down you go. And no matter how hard you struggle, you just can't get a footing. There's nothing to hold on to. Every time you push down, it just goes down further. And it's a, it's a sinking feeling. It's a, if you don't have a foundation, if you don't have footing, it's a place with no support, a place with no footing. And when we stand before God, who is the judge, in the judgment day, that's what it will be like for somebody who does not have the blood of Christ covering them. 
what are we going to say? We have no foundation. When he points and he says, my law says this, you did that. What are we going to say? No, I didn't. We're going to lie to God. We're going to come up with an excuse. Well, I only did that because so-and-so did that to me first. I have an excuse. No, we don't. The law is the law. Every philosophy will fail. All of our good works will slip. Our self-justification, whatever we're going to say about ourselves before God, won't work. It will slip away. Excuses will slip away. It's, it's, that, that slipperiness is what's talked about in the miry clay. There's no foundation. That's where an unsaved person is. That's a picture of an unsaved man. Second, a picture of what an unsaved person can do. That first picture shows it's, he can't do anything to get himself out, and that's true. But what can an unsaved person do? What did David do in this psalm? If you look at, if you look at the, the verbs here, number one, he can recognize his condition. He can understand that he's in danger. He can hear the gospel and, and understand that. He's going to be judged by God. An unsaved person can cry out to the Lord. What would you do if you were in a pit? Help. Somebody. Get me out of here. Really, that's all an unsaved person can do. He can't grab onto a rope and pull himself out. There is no rope. He can't climb onto the walls and scratch up the dirt and the rocks and grab onto a root. There's nothing there to hold on to. So maybe picture the pit with a miry clay at the bottom of it. So you can't even get to the wall. It's totally helpless. So what can an unsaved person do? The only thing he can do is turn to God. The only thing he can do is cry out. And that's what David said he did. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined unto me and he heard my cry. I cried out to the Lord. We have lots of illustrations of this in, in the Bible, right? Jonah was sent by God to Nineveh to preach to them. He didn't want to go, so he went the other direction. He took a ship out into the ocean to get as far away from God as he could get. Storm came up. The men realized it was him that was causing the storm. They chucked him overboard and was swallowed by a fish. I still laugh every time I think about it because it's just so ridiculous. What could he do? I mean, seriously, if you're in the belly of a fish in the middle of an ocean, what can you do? You don't get cell service down there, probably. What can you do? The only thing you can do is to pray, cry out to God. And actually, Jonah went for three days in there without even praying. And finally, he did. And God heard his cry. In Luke 18... Jesus told a parable about two men. One was a Pharisee, the other was a tax collector. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed like this, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. These extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So he came before God praying that way but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven but he beat his breast saying God be merciful to me a sinner I tell you this man went down to his house justified rather than the other 
For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That's what an unsaved man can do. He can humble himself before God and cry out. Romans 10 says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So an unsaved person can recognize his condition. He can cry out to the Lord. And he can wait for God. And that's it. And that's what David said. I waited patiently for the Lord. Because he's not bringing himself out of that pit. David made an earnest, persevering, repeated prayer. He had humbled himself before God and was waiting on God. And that's the only thing an unsaved person can do is to wait on God, to humble himself, and to cry out to God. Third, I want to show a picture of God's mercy and grace. Look at the words that are used. I waited patiently for the Lord, and what did he do? He inclined to me, and he heard my cry. If you're down there, in the dark, in the muck, and you're stuck, and somebody was at the top of the, of the hole, and you're yelling up to them, and they walk away, what are you going to think? What kind of a person would do that? An unkind person, an uncaring person? Is that God? No, it isn't. David cried out to God, and it says, God, incline to me. Incline, it means bend forward. You know when people are listening to you, right? And you know when they're not? Their eyes are elsewhere, they're fidgeting, they're, they're watching something, paying attention to something else, and, and you know that they're not listening. When somebody's really listening to you, what do they do? Lean forward a little bit, look you in the eye, that's the idea. God leaned forward to David so that he could listen. He turned toward me and he heard my cry. God doesn't have to do that for us. We actually deserve to be down in that pit. I don't know what you think about yourself, but when, if you take an honest look at yourself compared to the law of God, we stink. We don't keep the law of God. We're, we're sinful. That's the way we are. Why does God even bother with us? It's because of his love. It's because of his mercy. That's, that's the nature of God. And this picture here is so great. There was a sermon that John MacArthur preached a few years ago about the, uh, the prodigal son. I don't know if any of you have heard that or not, but if you haven't, you need to get a hold of it. It's a, it's a great listen. In that sermon, he went into great detail about the culture of the Middle Eastern uh, men at that time. And as you know, the story of the prodigal son, there were two sons, and one of them came to his father and, and demanded his inheritance early. And so his father gave it to him. He went out and he spent it on drinking and women and eventually lost it all, lost his friends, had no means of income, and ended up with the pigs, eating the pigs' food. And as he was there in that condition, again, another picture of where an unsaved person is, he thought to himself, 
even the servants in my father's house eat better than this. I'm just going to go throw myself at the mercy of my father and see what happens. And he did. He got up and he walked toward his father's house. And what did the father do that was unusual? When he saw his son coming, what did he do? He ran to him. And this is where, in, in that sermon, I, I don't remember it all, but there was, there was a certain dignity and honor that was a part of an elder's life in that culture. They wore robes that went down to the ankle. And in this case, he hiked up his robe and ran across town, exposing his legs to everybody as he ran, which was just not done. He humiliated himself because he loved his son. And not only that, he was waiting for him. He wasn't somewhere else. He saw his son afar off. Why did he do that? He was looking. That's why. God is a God of mercy and a God of grace. He heard my cry, David said. When the, when the Israelites were being enslaved by Egypt and they cried out because of the oppression that they were under, God heard their cry and sent Moses. It's a picture of the mercy and the grace of God. And if it weren't for that mercy and, the, and that grace, that person would still be in the hole. I'd like you to see a picture of God's work in salvation. All I want you to see is this. Who was it that inclined unto David? Who was it that brought David up out of the pit? Who was it that set his feet on a rock? Who was it that established his steps? Who was it that put the new song in his heart? Did David do any of that? Not a bit. Every bit of it was God. And you want to see a picture of God's work and salvation. That's what he does. He does the work. We get the benefit of it by faith. But we, can, we can't do anything. Salvation cannot be accomplished by us in, in anything that we can do. It was only by the death of God's Son on the cross that salvation could be accomplished, that the wrath of God could be satisfied. He is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. The changes that take place as us and as a believer, a picture of these changes, we're lifted from a pit in the miry clay and put somewhere else. We're taken from darkness and put into light. We're taken from death and put into life. What a change to be in a place that's dark and hopeless and then to be in a place that's full of joy and light and hope. Huge change. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Now in Christ, you who were once afar off have been brought near into the family. Your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And this change is permanent. First Peter talks about it as being undefiled, incorruptible, reserved in heaven for us. The change also is because if you look in... Uh, Verse 2, it says, he set my feet 
upon a rock. My feet were in the miry clay. He took them out and he put them on a rock. What's that talking about? It's, we're on a solid foundation now. We know where we are. We know who we are. We know where we're going. What a blessing that is. People in life, I, I, you know, I, I look back and I try to imagine my life. If, it had, if the gospel had not intersected my life at that point, where would I be today and what would I be thinking? Really? I mean, I'm halfway through my life probably. Where's it going? What is going to happen when I die? What is this life really all about? The believer has a new perspective to understand God and sin and salvation in this world, God's law, right and wrong, truth and error. And that's, a, that's what we're talking about as a foundation. Our feet are on that foundation. We have a new stability in life. Emotional, mental, spiritual stability. The Spirit of God resides within us. And those changes are real. David says, he established my steps, or he made my footsteps firm. Whereas before, we may not know where we're going. Now we have the leading of God in life. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he does what? He directs your paths. He makes your footsteps firm. He put a new song in your mouth. The old language that we used isn't sufficient to praise God anymore. We need new language, the language of praise, and that's what he put there. And so now we talk about the works of God and the wonders of God. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And last, a picture of a new believer's witness. This change not only is internal, but it's external, and people can see it. Verse 3, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see it. We're not here by ourselves. God saves us for a reason. We have a sphere of influence. We have a, a group of people that, we know, that you know that I don't know, that I know that you don't know. And our lives become a testimony, a living picture of God's grace. And many will see it. We're like a letter for other people to read, a book for other people to read. And they're reading about God and what he did as we live. Many shall see it. It also says many shall fear. And that's true. I was just talking with somebody last week who he knows I'm a Christian. He knows I'm a pastor. And so he, he makes these funny comments about religion and things when something happened in my favor. In, in this particular conversation. He goes, oh man, you must, you must have had a prayer party or something, you know, for that to have worked out that way. You know, and, and he's, he's saying things. And he knows, you know, that my life means something and it changes the way that he thinks about his own. And it's, many will see it and many will fear and, and people will. When they see your life and they see the joy and the happiness and the confidence that you have in Christ, they will begin to fear for their own life because of their sin, because they don't know. And then the great thing it says at the end is many will trust. Many will trust in the Lord. And how blessed is that man who's made the Lord his trust. So there's some pictures for us. I hope that as we think about these, these pictures that it will stir us to a greater appreciation for what God has done. As we think through the picture of the unsaved man in that pit, in that darkness, that he cannot escape, and that the only thing he can really do is to cry out to God. 
as we think of the picture of God himself and his mercy and his grace where he inclined unto us and heard our cry and brought us up out of the pit and put our feet on a rock, established our goings, put a new song in our mouth and those changes that God makes and then the picture of the believer who went from darkness to light, who has a new foundation, a new life, and a life that should radiate out so that other people can see it and can hear. So as we, as we think this morning and as I close, let me just say this. If you are here this morning and you don't know where you are and you might be in that pit because of your sin, cry out to God. He will hear you. He will save you. That's what he does because of his mercy and his grace. He's already provided the means through Jesus Christ, his son who sacrificed himself for you. It's up to us to cry out. Many people just stay down there and they never cry out. But if you know that there's a way out, cry out to God and see what he will do in your life. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for all that you have done in us and through us. I thank you for the salvation we have and pray that as we think about these pictures in Psalm 40 that David gave to us of the pit and the destruction and the miry clay and the change that can come through one who cries out to God by giving him a new foundation and solid footing. Lord, we, we thank you for all these things that you have done for us. And just pray that uh, you would impact our minds, our hearts today as we go home, that we would think about uh, what you've done and allow you to work in our lives. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.